Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today we'll be talking with Professor Cameron Strang, Assistant Professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. And we're going to be talking about his new book, Frontiers of Science, Imperialism and Natural Knowledge in the Gulf South Borderlands, 1500 to 1850. And Cameron Strang's Frontiers of Knowledge examines how colonists, soldiers, explorers, and American Indians created and circulated knowledge about the natural world and its inhabitants in the Gulf South. Covering 350 years of imperialism, Frontiers of Science demonstrates both how critical the creation of knowledge about imperial borderlands was to expansion and competition, but also to how diffuse, contested, and unstable these networks were. Not only explorers, but slave owners and their slaves, American Indians, soldiers, bureaucrats, and merchants, and many others all participated in the production of knowledge and shaped the way that the Gulf South was known. So, Cameron, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, as usual, I'd like to start with just a little bit about how you came to this project, which, as I read the book, seems um, so brilliant and like, how did nobody ever do this before? But then also, I can imagine as a graduate student, seemed hard to conceive. Oh, thank you, first. And I'd say, yeah, as a graduate student, I didn't conceive it, I think. Um, the the dissertation itself had a very different thrust. I had uh, initially begun with the idea of doing this kind of circum-Caribbean history of knowledge, um, you know, French, Spanish, English islands. And luckily, um, within my first year or so of graduate school, I realized that that would be beyond unfeasible. Um, so the idea I settled on for the dissertation was... I was trying to look at how the existence and example of the Spanish Empire in the spaces that the United States expanded into in its early decades shaped how science and expansion worked together in the United States, um, sort of creating an imperial American science. And I think I did a decent job of that with the dissertation. But what I was actually in the archives, however, what I found mostly was a big variety of sources, really weird and interesting sources about people producing, sharing knowledge who aren't the people we usually think about, right? These are French and Spanish Creoles, enslaved Africans and you know, natives. And what I decided to settle on for the book more than the dissertation was trying to reveal this broader world of American science, something that revealed what American science was beyond just these Anglo- uh, colonies and states on the on the eastern seaboard, and you know by using the the Gulf South as the, an example, um, you know using this as a way of sort of unpacking what intellectual life may have been like in the in North America on the whole, in this vast continental space where, um, you know, the one kind of constant from the 1500s to the 1900s really was the persistence of imperialism and how that affected knowledge among all groups in the continent. Yeah. And so, I mean, in this book, right, no 
major scientific discoveries are made. And although a few luminaries of science lurk on the sidelines, they are certainly peripheral to the story. Um, but this is a history of science. And and so how do you bring these people in and, and argue that they really should be part of what we think of as the history of science? I think it's a more a matter of, you know, getting away, and I'm not the first person to say this, you know, getting away from a kind of teleology of looking for the next great discovery and the next thing that, you know, changes how, uh, you know, European and Euro-American scientists think about the cosmos and getting more into you looking at how regular people understood nature. And some of these people were very highly educated, you know, would have thought of themselves as men of science. Um, others certainly weren't. But um, I think that having this narrow vision of American science that we've had for so long, I think ends up producing a very skewed kind of view about what American science was. That since we've only looked at these, you know, handful of Anglo men, we have this idea that science in the early Republic was, you know, driven by democracy, by liberty, by patriotism. But once you start looking in the borderlands, that story falls apart right away. I mean, you have uh, white folks, you know, who speak English who are working directly against the interests of the United States. Um, you know, you find that oppression and inequality far more than liberty and democracy are the things that are contextualizing and shaping science for um, the vast majority of the continent, I think. So I, I think by taking this this broader lens, even if you do lose some of the, uh, you know, great discoveries, if you will, um, I think you come up with a more sort of accurate, if less edifying picture of, of what intellectual life in America was. Yeah. And so in this book, one of the things I love so much and I found so fascinating and could toy with in my mind for so long was how to use certain tools that we normally use in the history or sociology of science to look at uh, Native American communities, to look at the uh, function of or the work of African slaves and the contributions of, you know, Creole slaveholders and stuff. Was that how did you do that, and what were the challenges of trying to extend those tools to these people that uh, you know weren't working in labs and uh, weren't on necessary not all of them on scientific expeditions and things like that? No, I, I appreciate you picked up on that, and to, I'd say to the extent that the book had a kind of methodology that that would be largely it. That you know applying perspectives that are usually seen. You know, limited to the history of science to you know other fields, especially borderlands history. And by that same token, applying perspectives that usually come out of borderlands history or Native American history to the history of science. And I, mean, I don't want to say make it sound like it was easy, but it was you know it was not unnatural for me in some ways because you know my training as a graduate student was very much in you know history of science stuff, but also borderlands Native America. And it just sort of took, a, you know, a willingness to, you know, think about, say, native chiefs as scientific patrons, or to look at how, you know, classic borderland issues like allegiance and identity play out among men of science. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's just a, a sort of willingness to, um, 
ignore boundaries that we, you know, we've sort of set up for ourselves in the profession. And um, luckily, well, we'll see if it turns out to be lucky or not. But I, I think that um, just the, the combination of things that I was interested in and read a lot of as a graduate student ended up informing each other in ways that you know, I don't think other historians of science have necessarily read so much in Borderlands history. Other Borderlands historians read so much in history of science to be able to do that kind of cross-pollination. Um, yeah. yeah, and so you you were just were saying, you know, one of the things was uh, treating uh, Native American chiefs as patrons of science. Can you elaborate a little bit more about um, how you're looking at that? Because I have certainly never uh, encountered that idea before, and it's a fascinating one. Sure, so... Um, one of the the big kind of borderland stories of the 15th, excuse me, the 16th and 17th centuries is the establishment of Spanish missions um, throughout Florida, New Mexico. And one of the things that uh, scholars of these regions have been really interested in is why some um, why some native chiefs decided to support Franciscans and the Spanish. And, um, you know, the answer is usually because it has to do with promoting, uh, you know, building alliances, uh, looking for prestige goods, sort of adding the Spanish to native traditions of how power and alliance work. And part of this um, that I've sort of added on to this literature is this, that these native chiefs in the Southeast, um, these sort of powerful headmen of these uh, called Mississippian chiefdoms, they start giving the same kinds of support to these learned Franciscans um, that they had been giving to learned native priests, things like, you know, agricultural surplus and, um, you know, gifts of temples and or monasteries in the case of the, um, of the Franciscans. And they did so for very similar reasons, because these Franciscans, just as native priests had done before, would bolster these individuals' power. And you even see um, some Franciscans uh, siding with Timucuan, uh, Timucuans, the Florida Indians, Timucuan chiefs against the Spanish during uh, sort of disputes. And... You know, as uh, historians of science have known for a while, right, in this, the 16th century, there wasn't really these clear boundaries between science, religion. Um, and this was just as true for the Franciscans as it was for the, for the native priests who had been patronized by these lords. So, um, yeah, so the, uh, as the patronage shifts, um, not from all, but from many of these native chiefs from uh, native priests to Spanish ones, it really encourages this broader shift of power, broader shift in belief towards um, Christianity. It's never a complete transition, but it's I think it's a really major step in changing the culture and religions of these uh, Florida Indians, the, just this, the shift in patronage support. Yeah, and so then we get these sort of uh, parallel communities of creating knowledge, which you know, so on the one hand, the the, the Seminoles or the Chickasaw or whoever uh, have their own networks of knowledge creation, and the Spaniards are coming in and they're trying to um, extend their networks into this territory and uh, know it. Uh, 
what were the limits of this for the Spaniards? It's an interesting question. Um, I mean, what eventually ended up happening was that um, you know, Spain established its you know, missions throughout much of northern Florida. But um, by the time that the mission system was you know, getting a little bit older, uh, you know, France, Britain had always also started establishing colonies in the region and creating another very sort of uh, you know, powerful buffer against uh, Spanish influence. But what ends up happening that I find really interesting is that these European networks and these sort of pre-existing indigenous networks that you mentioned start to grow together really uh, powerfully in the 1700s, um, largely because there's this shared tradition on both sides in which access to exotic stuff, you know, exotic plants, exotic materials um, from faraway places was a sign of prestige and power on both sides. So the the king of England wants to a, accumulate Floridian plants for his botanical garden for very similar reasons that, um, you know, Floridian chiefs want to accumulate feathers or European birds um, because it shows that they have reached, that they have, they're at the top of these uh, networks of gift giving of exchange. And it's the, the sort of inter- interpenetration of these two, uh, you know, relatively parallel systems of value um, and value of specimens, value of knowledge that really draws these networks so closely together, I think, in the 1700s. And does it, does it strongly change the way these networks work as these items become commodified? I don't, I don't know, because there is a growing willingness, I don't want to say willingness, a growing sort of reality in which natives start thinking about stuff in commodity terms, that exchanging things like feathers that they had long done as prestige items, they start to sell at a price. At the same time that um, a lot of Europeans start to you know, give gifts freely be, to natives as because the idea that this is the way to, you know, most tap into these networks and benefit from them the most. So I'd say that commodities really become one aspect of this, because the boundary between a commodity and a natural history specimen um, can be pretty blurry, Um, like deerskins, right? These were the big commodity coming out of the Southeast, but, you know, often... Skins were also preserved and sent as specimens. Skins were painted with, you know, uh, natives also painted these skins with pictures of other animals and such to present as gifts to either other Indians or to Europeans. So these these objects could take on you know, different meanings depending on context, right? Yeah. And um, so, you know, as we walk into the uh, or enter into the 18th century this the gulf south is marked by relentless uh, transfers of power between the french and the british and the and the spanish and uh and of course much of the regions under the control yet of native american mm-hmm. societies um so how does this instability um mark and, and shape the way knowledge is created i think one of the big uh continuities really and 
in this region, I'd say in most of North America, um, at least until the early 1800s, is this the persistence of geopolitical competition uh, among European empires and then you know, between Europeans and, and native groups as well. Um, and that this competition really drives the desire to accumulate knowledge on the part of you know, European officials um, and also uh, you know, native leaders. That, um, you know, there's this belief, true or not, that you know, knowledge contributes to power. And the, you know, whether it's learning about what commodities exist or um, an example that I explore in the book, learning about local geography, and it's really these sort of competitions um, between France, Britain, Spain that push geographers and cartographers in each of these regions to really step up their efforts to communicate with um, you know, individuals on the ground, acquire as much knowledge as they can from them, and incorporate this stuff into maps. And these maps that they make are by no means aiming at objectivity. They're always you know, trying to take territory at each other's expense, English maps consistently put the boundaries of South Carolina south of St. Augustine. And, and um, so, yeah, I'd say that this, this competition for empire, which was particularly intense in the Gulf South, but really played out across the continent, was an ongoing motivation for uh, officials to seek knowledge and for individuals on the ground to produce knowledge because they knew that their work would be valued by officials in these contested regions. So it really inspired people who might have otherwise looked for other outlets um, as potential ways to make connections, get money, to focus on you know, geography, natural history, etc. Yeah, but so, I mean, uh, many of these people are you know, quite consciously and intentionally contributing to the expansion of one or another of these empires. What do they do when the flags change? It depends. Um, some of them are very eager to jump on board with the the new uh, the new empire. Uh, the biggest example of this is a guy named William Dunbar, who had been in French. Excuse me, had been in. British West Florida, then in Spanish West Florida, and then eventually in uh, the U.S. territory of Mississippi. And, you know, he had profited from being an astronomer and a surveyor for all of these powers. And when he finally, when uh, the U.S. came to power, he not only was eager to reach out and create correspondences with guys like Thomas Jefferson, but he did so in a way that he was he knew that his power on the ground was extremely valuable to Jefferson that there were not a lot of astronomers in this region right who could you know do the kind of observations needed to create maps and all of this so he was able to really dictate the terms of this relationship and i found it really interesting that he the kind of networks he deliberately built with Jefferson and officials in the east were perpetuations of the kind he had developed under spain Spain also was an empire that was you know, very overextended in this region and really relied on local men of science, local power brokers. And Dunbar was able to use the same kind of ties he'd built with Spanish governors and his relationships with um, U.S. officials. So it's, it's not just that you know, the individuals and their knowledge persists, it's the, the way that they connect with 
um, leaders persist. And this is largely has to do with from the initiative of guys in the borderlands. On the other hand, there are people who um, directly resist after the change of change of flags and, you know, will, you know, continue to see the United States or, you know, another empire that took over the really confusing geopolitical situation down there. But, um, and we continue to see them as enemies and, um, you know, try to, you know, work against, uh, against their interests. Um, but those people are, are kind of harder to find, I think, because they tend to get erased more from history. They don't have a kind of national framework to be studied because they're not really welcome in, say, the United States or, or Spain. And they didn't really have the same kind of networks that existed for people who you know, were eager to join into the new power base. So they, the kinds of knowledge they did and the connections they built remain much more shadowy and hard to uncover. And, um, but I think I found one or two of those guys. Yeah. Well, so in this region of, uh, uh, unstable and, and, and shifting allegiances, what is, what happens for this story of knowledge production as, uh, the United States gradually, uh, establishes, uh, you know, sufficient control over the over the area. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so by the eighteen tens or so, um, with the victory over the Brit over Britain in the uh, War of eighteen twelve, um, with various victories over Spain and free black people and Indians on the the Gulf South, um, the United States does come out on top in this region after some 300 years of uh, competition for it, 250 years. And in a lot of ways, though, the, the kind of imperial context that had long been governing knowledge production in this region and the continent doesn't really change because it, the same sorts of relationships and encounters that had you know, fostered and shaped knowledge production for so long continued to do so. The most important of these, I think, was uh, violence and um and in this case, violence against uh, enslaved blacks in particular, that um, you know, this was something that Spanish governors had experimented with implementing as early as the 1560s, um, but had really gotten perfected by, you know, in its evil kind of way, gotten perfected by Anglos in the Gulf South in the 1800s who really mastered turning you know, violence against people into experimental agriculture for profit. The other, um, another way that this older context persisted was these kind of long distance networks among, you know, within the empire that white folks in the Gulf South continued to relate in all sorts of ways with white folks um, in the Northeast, uh, in DC and Philadelphia and Boston. And, but the the ways that these networks existed really run counter um, to our assumptions about how knowledge was organized in the early republic. That we tend to think that places like Philadelphia or DC were always, you know, at the center of networks of knowledge and patronage. But the kind of power that and wealth that these Gulf South planners were able to amass through violence against blacks. And that enabled them sometimes to become 
patrons that offered support to uh, scientists coming out of Philadelphia, support that dwarfed anything that governments or Eastern institutions were giving at this time. So I, I think it, you know, that example really drives home how the United States, even after you know, uh, establishing power in this region, continued to operate in a lot of the same ways that uh, European empires had operated for so long. Like uh, one of the, you know, in the last 20 years or so, the big revelations about science and empire is how these are organized polycentric, bleh, with polycentricity. How there's not just a metropole and, and colonies. And this really persists into the early United States where there are multiple centers um, funding and promoting knowledge. And some of these are places where we don't really look like uh, southern plantations that, um, you know, we tend to think of as spaces that are, you know, anti-scientific in some ways, but, um, you know, actually were very much on the forefront of promoting and uh, conducting scientific inquiries. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we so often think of science as being inherently peaceful. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, during the same period of time, uh, you know, this is the turn of the, of the 19th century and, and further on to the, uh, to the civil war, uh, science is becoming, you know, science with a capital S mm-hmm. as a, as a reified institution, uh, you know, academically entrenched and, um, internationally hallowed. How does, does that emerge here? Does that manifest in the Gulf South? Did it emerge in the ways that people were, were thinking about human diversity and the ethnographic research that's going on in this region? I'd say very much so that um, one of the, I'd say in fact that this definition of, you know, capital S science and really like the hardening of that definition has a lot to do with the you know, ongoing project of imperial expansion. And um, the Anglo-Americans who were intent on you know, conquering the Gulf South and the rest of the West, these guys were eager to observe uh, ethnographically the huge variety of people that they found in the Gulf South, Creoles, diverse Africans, diverse Indians. And one of the things they were particularly interested in was studying their you know, their sort of mental capacity, as they would have put it, their capacity to do intellectual things like science. And in the process of um, studying these people and with very, you know, clear motivations, I think, for arguing for the mental inferiority of blacks and natives in particular, um, they started to define what they were doing as different. Uh, science was something that was uh, required a kind of discipline and inborn mental ability that was reserved for white folks in their minds. And um, I think that this is a story that, of course, isn't just limited to the, to the Gulf South by any means, a very international event. But I think there is a, a really telling example here in the Gulf South that would find parallels when you know, looking at European expansion into Africa and Asia around the same time that it, you know, it's part of a global story of uh, imperialism and ethnography and defining not only others, but defining yourselves in contrast to them. And 
justifying your own fitness for empire. And I'd say it was sort of indicative of a larger international trend at this time where Europeans and Euro-Americans are, you know, eager to justify their own you know, fitness for, for empire, fitness to dominate. And that it, that their observ- the observations of these ethnographers also ended up having a long, very long historiographical legs, I'd say, that when you know, 19th century Anglo historians wanted to write about you know, French Creoles or natives, they would have looked to the writings of these, you know, these ethnographers. And a lot of things that we have long dismissed as kind of you know, the, the biases or um, you know, prejudices of Anglo writers like you know, Francis Parkman or guys like this, a lot of their writings, though, were probably based on you know, what seemed like good science at the time, the, the observations of these supposedly credible Anglo-Americans. So I, I think that, you know, these ethnographies that emerge out of this moment of conquest that are being written in the 1810s, 1820s, they end up shaping how we think about the intellectual history of the rest of the continent. In fact, have sort of created the, the myth that I really hope to dispel in the book, that the rest of the continent didn't have an intellectual history and um, that intellectual life and science were something that took place, you know, where Anglo-Americans were in the East and didn't exist in the rest of the continent. And, um, you know, hopefully the, the big goal of the book is to reverse that, that longstanding uh, argument. Yeah. I, I mean, so one of the things that's very impressive about this book um, is, as I read it, is uh, going through the research that, that went into this. Uh, you know, so so many of these figures are uh, maybe not entirely unknown to historians, but are certainly not known in this way and in this depth. And there are hundreds of individuals here, probably. How did you do this research and how did the, how did the doing of it and the shapes of the archives shape the way this project came about? So first of all, I'd say that I hope that ends up being a plus, right? Like there's, there's always a level of doubt, right? Where you're writing about these hitherto little known people. Um, and I think I, I, I agree that, you know, the bulk and quantity of these people that I found hopefully ends up, showing that even if none of them in particular have been noticed before, the, the, the sheer amount of these people who are doing this kind of stuff reveals the, the importance of this, of this world, right? And the, its viability. Um, but in terms of research, you know, a lot of it has to do with uh, archival serendipity, I guess, that, um, I, as I said, I sort of dove into the archives looking for these connections between Spain and the United States. And um, while you know looking through archival catalogs and such, I tend to look for headings like you know, science, natural history, botany, um, medicine, geography, and a lot of times these would lead me to you know, people who I hadn't heard of before, guys like Thomas Power, Francis Fascio, and for the the ones that I ended up pursuing in the most depth in the book, it was individuals who you know the first or usually the the sources I found about these people seemed interesting enough and weird enough that I couldn't really stop myself from 
keeping an eye out for them further, right? So I'd say I'd find something about someone in, uh, you know, the records of the Archivo General de Indias. And then I start looking for that. I thought, oh, maybe I'll look for that same name again in this next archive. And and ended up, and for me, this is one of the big kind of research triumphs of the book is being able to piece together these lives that were you know, such borderland kind of lives that they can't be followed through any one nation's or even sometimes any one language's archives. And being able to pick up enough pieces of this to to often tell life stories. And I hadn't expected when I started this book to write so many you know, stories about individuals. Um, so many, I don't want to say biographies, but, you know, sort of micro histories of people and what they did. But it seemed to me a much more revealing way to, to, to put the complexities of the world they lived in on display. Because by looking at individuals, you can trace their multiple different loyalties, their multiple different knowledge networks, the multiple kinds of violence and competition and, and such that made their intellectual work what it was. And um, I think that would have been largely lost if I tried to write a kind of God's eye view narrative of, of the whole region at once. Um, so yeah, the short answer is, <laughs> a mix of luck and curiosity, I'd say, of you know finding people whose stories I thought were interesting enough that I wanted to learn about and I wanted to tell. Yes, and um, as you were talking about before, um, this is a method that really works well with both history of science and borderlands history, that histories of science that focus on one scientist, say like you know, Newton or whomever, um, really were able to reveal the complexities and the multiple dimensions that go into making their knowledge what it was in ways that are really hard if we focus, say, just on the ideas or just on the the era, right? And there's a very similar uh, thrust in, in borderland scholarship as well, especially studies of allegiance and loyalty that look at the decisions and lives of individuals to reveal the complexities of the world in a way that, you know, if you're just looking at the records of officials say, you know, those are records that are trying to simplify the world, to try to make it seem like there are clear boundaries between, say, Spain and the United States. When you and those but those boundaries really start to dissolve when you start looking at the individual stories of people on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and a, a related thing that I've noticed in this book, and this may not have been as intentional as it appears to me, but there's a conspicuous absence of the word and the idea of culture or ideology here, even though there's so many things present uh, from ritual to religion to um, uh, inspiration that, that many scholars would put under those rubrics. Um, was this intentional? Maybe. That's interesting. Um, I think I may have avoided it because... Uh, for two reasons. Um, one, that I think as soon as we start talking about culture like that, it becomes very easy to separate the things that enslaved Africans are doing, the slaves, things that natives are doing from science. It's like, oh, they're not doing, or from natural, the pursuit of natural knowledge, as I call it in the book. That It's like, oh, they're not doing, they're not participating in intellectual life. They're just doing what their cultures do, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say that's one reason that I, I think culture has a lot of pitfalls as a term and, and sort of leads us to assumptions about you know, high culture and low culture and this sort of thing. A sort of more uh, on-the-nose reason, um, one of the, the books I found really influential as a graduate student um, was uh, um, Claudio Sant's book about um, power and material objects, uh, a new order of things in among the Creek Indians. And he very deliberately doesn't use the word culture throughout the whole book. And um, I don't know if that was a I don't think I had that in mind while I was writing it, but I, I did find that I, I think I'd always found that a very sort of powerful rhetorical device, if nothing else, right. To sort of take away the assumptions we have in our minds that put boundaries between Indian history, European history. That exhausts most of my questions. I mean, although I feel like I could talk about this book forever, uh, it's, are there any aspects that we haven't covered that you want to make sure are present here for the listeners? I'd just like to emphasize that you know this this sort of world of violence, imperialism, competition, creating and contextualizing knowledge doesn't really end in 1850 when the book ends. That we can really trace this going on in America and I think the world, you know, well into the the 20th century and beyond. Right? That, as you said before, that we have this this sort of innate assumption of thinking about science as something peaceful, something done in labs, in quiet, tranquil spaces where people are friends with each other. But, it, you know, this the overlap of imperialism, violence, and, and this close connection to knowledge production really persists and, you know, persists into the conquest of the West in the late 1800s. And, you know, at um, in the epilogue, I talk about how the rise of the Smithsonian is really tied very directly to Western expansion. It persists into the early 20th century as the U.S. Um, expands into the Caribbean and into the Pacific um, in its formal imperial era, although I'd say that's much more of a persistence of older trends. And I'd say it even persists into the late 20th century, where imperial competition with the Soviet Union drives the connections between the military the capacity for violence and um, you know, scientific research into sort of a new degree of collaboration that hadn't existed before. So I'd say that this connection between imperialism and you know American science sort of being what it is um, is really persistent and vital, and I think should really challenge our older view or you know the the normal view that. Um, you know, what made American science what it is was, you know, liberty, democracy, patriotism. Yeah. So, Cameron, what are you going to work on next? I have probably irrationally already uh, dove in deep into the, the second book project. I should take a break. But um, I'm writing a history of Native American explorers, um, of Eastern Indians who explored the West in the 1700s and the 1800s. And yeah, I mean, in several ways, I think this develops out of the out of frontiers of science and its emphasis on you know native intellectuals um, doing research in the context of empire. And the big takeaway, at least you know, I've been working on this for a couple of years, but the big sort of takeaway I've come up with so far is that you know, looking at these native explorers really makes us rethink 
this relationship between exploration and empire that has become you know so deeply ingrained in us like um and i'd make the argument that you know, the stories we now know about exploration and empire are really only about half or less than half of the story that the much bigger story is how european imperialism and, and u.s imperialism end up catalyzing a whole nother enormous wave of of uh, exploration on the part of indigenous peoples throughout the world mm. who, you know, once they are confronted with you know, the disease, death, violence, uh, degradation of imperialism, they start searching out new territories, new resources, new allies. So it's not just that imperialism, you know, leads you know, a handful of white explorers out to the corners of the earth. It's that imperialism sets off this massive wave of um, exploration among people we, you know, for a lot of deep historical reasons, haven't thought about as explorers. And now I'm looking at this in the context of Eastern Indians going into the West, but I'd argue you know, the same thing is happening in Africa and Australia and South America. I cannot wait to read that. I, I'm so. excited about writing it. So thank you. Okay. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you.